The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Welcome to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Discover hope and healing from the other side. Welcome to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman. Listen, they're all around you, close as a thought or a memory. Messages of Hope. Hi, everybody. I'm kind of excited. We're trying something different today. I can actually see my guest. We usually just call in and talk on the phone, but I'm looking at Stephanie Arnold, and it's just opened my heart hugely. <laughs> just like when I do readings, and I've been doing them by Zoom, I, it's there's just something about seeing that other soul eye to eye. So my guest today is a former television producer. I love that she says she... she she got out of that business to produce a family. And it's what happened in producing her second child that is the that forms the basis of our story today. She had premonitions that she would die giving birth, and no one believed her. I read her book in one evening. Poor Ty. He was like, where's my wife? Because my head was buried in this book. I couldn't put it down. It's so beautifully written. And tells this amazing story that we get to dive into today. So let me not talk any further. Stephanie Arnold's the author of 37 Seconds, Dying Revealed Heaven's Health. Stephanie, say hi to everybody. Hi, everybody. Sam, <laughs> thank you so much for having me. You've just opened my heart so much ever since the first time we actually met each other over by the phone. Yeah, we got to chat uh, earlier and just told each other our stories. And I love that we were just chatting just for a minute before we went on the air. And you said that you're now a bit more open after talking to me about talking openly about the afterlife in the spirit world. And girl, I'm going to tell you, buckle your seatbelt. <laughs> Hang around me a little while and I'll have you shouting it from the rooftops. Because it's it's so hard. Of it, but yeah. No, I mean, I, I agree. I, Jonathan would wish I'd go back into that that skeptical closet, I guess. <laughs> Jonathan is your husband. husband. We don't want to get ahead of ourselves here. Let me ask my team where we should start. Let's just start with the basic story of you were pregnant with your second child and what happened. Pregnant with second child around the 20-week ultrasound, I was diagnosed with a placenta previa, which is basically when the placenta is growing on top of the cervix. And it's not a big deal. It's a 1 in 200 risk. And as the belly grows, the, the placenta will, usually moves out of the way. But the worst case scenario is you'll need a hysterectomy, or not a hysterectomy, you'll need um, a C-section. 
And I've had a C-section before. I've been pregnant before. But there was something that sat in me very uncomfortably. And I looked at my husband, who is a former Air Force pilot, a PhD economist from University of Chicago, and very data-driven. And I said, yeah, just slightly, right? (laughs) So I said to him, I've got a bad feeling about this. And he's like, let's not get ahead of ourselves. You know, we're doing everything we need to do. Let's find, let's just find out everything. Well, so what does Dr. Google do? You know, you go home (laughs) and you learn a placenta previa can turn into an accreta, which is, you know, where the placenta merges with the uterus. And if that happens, you might bleed. If that happens, you might need a hysterectomy. If that happens, (laughs) you might hemorrhage. And if you hemorrhage, you and the baby could lose your lives. So this is like every doctor's nightmare, the patient that goes online and reads all the what ifs, everything that could go wrong. So I'm imagining everybody thinks you are now catastrophizing. A hundred percent. I sat back, I looked at this and I looked at my husband, I said, this is going to happen to us. The only difference is the baby's going to survive. And he looks at the screen and he's like, what you're afraid of happening is less than a half of a half of a half of a half, a half a percent chance of happening. He's like, just get it out of your thoughts. But it was a knowing. But I, hang on a second. You, I, you, I don't know if at this point you felt you were going to die. You didn't say that just now. No, I felt as soon as I read those words, it was a knowing. It sat with me like yeah. this is what is going to happen. Yeah, you didn't say that. And this is the big thing. The baby would survive, but you knew right. you were going to die. Yeah. And so I, you, you didn't need to take my word for it. I told everybody. I told every one of my doctors, all the nurses, anybody who triaged me, anybody, every ultrasound. Um, I said, my placenta previa is going to turn into an accreta. I'm going to need extra blood. I'm O negative. Um, you know, 7% of the population is O negative. I'm like, you're going to need extra blood. I need to have a hysterectomy. Like I was, I sounding like a complete lunatic and, and in everybody's defense, um, all the tests were negative. Everything that I was worried about Mm. tested negative. The placenta previa hadn't really, you know, it hadn't moved. So they were thinking, yes, you're going to have a C-section on the 37th week, but there was no accreta. There was no anything. So So, may I interrupt here a second? Your husband knows you really well. And the people you're sharing this with know you well. Were you known as a worrier? Not at all. My previous, you know, and that's what I tell the doctors now when, when I lecture at hospitals or universities, I'm like, they were missing a very key component. I am not a histrionic neurotic person. I had had a baby before I had had surgeries before. So this was not a fear of, you know, this unknown, this was more of a fear of knowing. And so I said to, um, the, well, the doctors were missing that big, that big signal. I had, I was a TV producer. I worked really well under heavy stress. I worked really well under pressure. So this was just, this was like me seeing an, oh, everybody's seeing an open road and me seeing an 18 wheeler in the distance heading straight for me, mm. but nobody and, else could see it. And I'm sure that most of us get a feeling, Ooh, this could go wrong. What if there's a problem? Can you put into words? I know you did it in your yeah. book, but just for us right here, right now, the difference mm-hmm. you called it a knowing, but more, more than that. Yeah. So the difference between a premonition and a casual thought. So a casual thought, if you're sitting on an airplane and you think it, um, Oh, planes crash, this plane could crash. Oh my God, this plane's going to crash. It is a fleeting momentary experience. It is zapped right in that moment. But huh. 
if you have a feeling that you shouldn't take this trip for weeks at a time, it's incessant. There's something that makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. It's constantly there. It's not in dreams. It's not just in dreams. It's when you're awake, when you're asleep, when you're walking around, you're having visions. And, and they that's keep... not what you're normally like. That is not what you're normally like. No. No, that's when you know to take it a little seriously. Not that the plane necessarily is going to crash, but the fact that maybe you were needed to be there because something else was going to happen. And that's so I would- That's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I hear the stories and you know, these stories from nine 11, there were people that just stayed home or missed a train or delayed getting into their car. Mm -hmm. And there was just something that was just like, I don't know what this was. It was an eerie feeling that they had prior. So these, these things just stick with you and they do not let up until you listen to it. So a phrase that my guides have given me so many times and people across the veil also, when it's your time, it's your time. Mm -hmm. So I'm seeing an even bigger picture that now you're helping people to learn. We're jumping way ahead here, mm. but you're helping people with this message to really notice the difference between uh, premonition and what did you call the other one? A casual thought. Casual yeah. thought. And I feel that that may be why you had this premonition so that you would take action and people would pay attention because it I, wasn't your time. Well, and that, this is a conversation that will continue because, you know, Jonathan likes to say that, well, if you're predetermined or free will and how does that fit? And I said, well, maybe I was always predestined to not, um, stay dead at the yeah. moment of impact, but the free will was my ability to speak up and That's how it. well, and how well I survived Goosebumps, yeah. was due to me speaking up. And well, so we'll talk about how yeah. you, you did survive, but oh my, not, yeah. I'm not so well. We'll talk about that later. But yeah, no, a but, therapist but, once said to me, she's like, she, I said, well, we dodged a bullet. And she's like, oh no, the bullet hit you dead on. You survived the bullet. And that was a different way of thinking about it. And that made me cry a lot because the reality is it was very close. It was very close. Yeah, yeah I, I wrote that phrase down right here. In fact, you know, you, you dodged a bullet. You didn't die. But no, it it did. Your your recovery was horrendous. And we'll talk more about that. But going back to we're going to spend the first half talking about this incident. Then the second half more about what happened Perfect. when you died Perfect. and the results and the what sure. you learned from that. But what percentage of the medical people that you told do you feel took you seriously? one person. Oh, wow. So this is wonderful that you're talking to medical people now. Yeah. So, I mean, if you saw the amount of consultations I had, I mean, I actually, at one point we had a friend who's a fellow gynecological oncologist and they spend their time dealing with high risk reproductive organ cancer. And I said to him, I said, what happens in the event that I need a hysterectomy during the time I get birth? Stephanie, what you're thinking of is never going to happen. Okay, can you entertain me? Can you just amuse me? Mm. So he's like, he's like, okay, well, what would happen is the OB would not be able to do the procedure. They would pass you to maternal fetal medicine. But maternal fetal medicine doesn't have as much experience as a gynoc who deals with high-risk surgeries. And during a preg during delivery, 20% of your blood supply is going to the uterus. You would want a gynoc to perform the hysterectomy. So I actually made an appointment with the head of gynecological oncology at Northwestern Memorial Hospital. And that's a teaching hospital. They deliver 12,000 babies a year. 
I have no diagnosis, zero <laughs> diagnosis that yeah. I should be seeing or any referral going to this doctor. And we're sitting in the waiting room and my husband is looking at these women barely surviving their cancers, right? With IVs in their arms, loss of hair. And he's like, I am embarrassed to be here. And I said, I don't know what to tell you, but everybody else is telling me that I'm fine and I'm just stressed and maybe I need to sleep. And maybe there's too much testosterone running through my body with this little boy. But maybe this doctor has heard something from one of his patients and maybe this would flag, flag somebody that you know, it's not my usual doctor. So we get into the consultation room and the, the guy in Anka is sitting there with his resident and she's taking notes. And he says, you know, how can I help you? I said, my husband likes to say it was very much like a mafia meeting. Like I see you, you see me, you're my doctor. And, um, by the way, my placenta previa is going to turn into an accreta. When I deliver, I would really like you to be the one to perform the hysterectomy. <laughs> and he sat, and where's your crystal ball, right? He sat back and he said, Mrs. Arnold, have you been on the internet? <laughs> I said, why? Well, yes, I have doctor, but this is going to happen. And so he is like, okay, why don't we get an MRI? And if the MRI is positive for an accreta, then I will set myself the day of your, your mandatory C-section. Okay. And I felt better, right? I had something to do because maybe mm -hmm. there was something physiologically happening in the body that was sending a signal to the brain and they just couldn't pick it up with the ultrasounds and everything else. So they do the MRI and the MRI is negative for an accreta. So Jonathan says, my husband says, you should feel better. And I said, no, I feel worse because mm -hmm. I'm running out of people to tell this crazy foreboding story to. Ooh. And then I, I took to Facebook. I said, if anybody has my blood type, I'm going to need it. I wrote goodbye letters. I sent out goodbye letters. I'm reading your book and you say this, and I'm just, you said earlier that you talked about the courage to go out, to open up as a medium right before we went on the air. And to me, that didn't take courage. It's just what you do when you know. Mm -hmm. This is real. And I read your book and you talk about the, you know, I just went on Facebook and said, I'm going to need O, o negative. Is it? O negative, yeah. O negative blood because this is going to happen in surgery. Now, to me, I say that took courage, but no, it's the same thing. You, I guess so. You. I guess so. I, you know, I didn't question the differences is you would have known that this is coming from unforeseen forces. I didn't question where this knowing came from. Yeah. And, and so I just heard it very loudly and very clearly. And I said, I have to take action to produce the life-saving measures. You know, maybe it's my producer brain and my research-oriented brain, but I'm like, I am going to be prepared, <laughs> right? Maybe I'm type A, but anyway, it's so. not it. You know it's not it now. <laughs> right, so so I didn't question it. I just knew I had to do it. And, and the worst case scenario is I'm wrong. Okay, the worst case scenario, I'm wrong, and people are going to judge me and think I'm crazy and I'm hormonal. They were already doing it. It didn't really matter. So, <laughs> so if I'm wrong, yeah. I said, you will never regret speaking up and being wrong, That's but right. you will regret not speaking up and being dead right. So I'm reading all of your efforts in your wonderful book, 37 seconds. And you, you and is it your cousin who wrote it with you? Sari, yeah. My cousin. You both, Sari, did this beautiful job of writing because you built this, built this, built this, all of your efforts right to the point where you're almost as a reader ready to say enough already. I get it. She knew this was going to happen. You're almost like, okay, but, and then it 
and then comes the birth. So yeah. it was this beautiful building the suspense till the reader's almost sick of it. Yeah. I said that with total respect because, I, I that way. because you are really reflecting what everybody around you must have felt and your angst just keeps building. So describe how you felt when you went into deliver the baby. First of all, yeah. it wasn't a normal day. It wasn't. It was 36 weeks to the day. And my husband was working in New York and I'm in Chicago and he was going to be back that night or the next day. And, um, I was making breakfast for my daughter who was two at the time. And, um, I start bleeding all over the kitchen floor and I live directly behind a hospital, but not the hospital I coordinated my care. So, you know, I get my nanny, I get my daughter, we get in the car and my nanny gets in the, um, the front, the driver's seat. And I said, get out of the car and said, get in the back seat. And she's like, Stephanie, you're bleeding. I said, had lots of premonitions, dying in a car accident was not one of them. Get, <laughs> right? So I get to the hospital, I get triaged. Um, I am texting, Skype chatting with Jonathan. Um, and I am acutely aware that this is the day I'm going to die. So it's, <laughs> You know, I've had conversations with doctors who said, if my patient had the amount of foreboding you had, I would not have had the procedure. I said, this baby was coming out no matter what. Yeah, so what are you going to do? Couldn't, couldn't escape it. Talk about helpless. Yeah, you feel like you're being buried alive and you're just waiting for the final final dirt on over you. That's, okay. that's all you're doing. And it's palpable and you have an epidural in and you can't get out of it. And so I'm texting my husband and saying, you know, please tell, you know, our children, please love them, know that you made me the happiest woman in the world. And he's still not getting it. And so he's like, where do I meet you? And I'm like, eighth floor recovery, hopefully. And then I kiss my daughter a million times because I'm, I, I, I'm convinced it's the last time I'm going to see her. And so they take me back to the OR. Everything is quiet. And I do one last ditch effort. I say to my doctor, there's something wrong. You need to put me under general anesthesia. And she said, Stephanie, if I do that, I'm going to put the baby to sleep. And I said, and he's like, I know you're nervous. Jonathan's not here. And that's it. I'm being wheeled into the room. That's going to give life to my son and take mine. <laughs> and the fear is so palpable that when you are having a C-section, they have you in a, a T-straps, basically. They have a curtain in front of your face. It's cold, you're nervous, but now add the fear of moment of impact is coming. So I don't, re they said it was about 15 minutes before they delivered Jacob. I don't remember any of the 15 minutes. I feel like I scared myself out of my body mm -hmm. that, that I was not wanting to watch anything that was about to come or be present. And so, because they kept saying that. They so, kept but we talk about out-of-body experiences a lot on this show. Yeah. That's not what you're saying. You're talking about the psychological dissociation, right? Yeah. I mean, I yeah. can't, I cannot remember no matter what they, you know, those moments until I went back where, where I told you. So I don't remember in this plane, like those 15 minutes and nor do I remember the time, but but yeah, I would assume it's more disassociation, but they tried talking to me. They said I was catatonic. I didn't uh -huh. answer anything. Um, they deliver a healthy, happy baby. And then seconds later, I'm dead on the operating table. <sighs> this would be such a great time to go to a break, but we're not going to do that. We'll be nice. <laughs> uh, now, yeah. what you left out mm -hmm. is that you had this wonderful anesthesia. Yeah, and but I'll get to it. I will get, I will get to that. Listen. I will absolutely, I will absolutely okay. get to that because so, um, 
so there were, I ended up having an amniotic fluid embolism, which is a very rare one in 40,000 risk where amniotic cells get into the mother's bloodstream. And if you happen to be allergic to it, your body goes into anaphylactic shock. And in many of the cases that you don't make it, um, it is a, an OB's worst nightmare. The first, if you're lucky enough to be resuscitated with the first half of an AFA, which is cardiac arrest, um, then you know, then the second phase starts, which is DIC, which is your body's inability to clot blood. And and, and your doctors had never even seen this. Never, never, yeah. ever, ever seen it. And so what, so huh. I had predicted a lot of things, but there was one thing in the operating room I did not predict. And that was, there was an extra cart, there was a crash cart and there was extra blood in the operating room. And I was told later that in one of my consultations, several weeks before I gave birth to an anesthesiologist, not that I gave birth to an <laughs> anesthesiologist, but you know what I mean, that I had a consultation with an anesthesiologist and she was a young fellow, very spiritual. And she said, it didn't sit right with her that I had spoken exact. She'd never had a patient that had spoken exactly what was going to happen, had had a baby before, had had a C-section before and had sought out specialists to save her life. And with that one phone call, that doctor flagged my file and incorporated extra blood in a crash cart in the operating room and those measures. So it would, would never have had that in a normal C-section, a crash cart, which is what they need when somebody goes into cardiac arrest. And that's exactly what happened to you. And then you start, your blood's no longer clotting and you needed that extra blood. So normal C-section will have about six units of blood and I'm O negative. So I'm a universal donor, but I can only receive O negative blood. And luckily I'm in a teaching hospital with a blood bank, but your blood supply, you normally have 20 units of blood. I was given 60 units of blood. So when you're talking Mm. that they still have to defrost the blood, they have to circulate the blood and they have to get it ready. So there was extra blood ready as my platelets and everything were crashing uh, to keep me above board. So I was oxygenated. Wow. So you, you keep going. Cause I know. Okay. You- yeah. So then, <laughs> yeah. Um, so then, so all of this happens and then Jonathan arrives at the hospital and he texts the doctor. So are you, you know, how Steph's like the baby's fine. Stephanie's stable. And my husband's smart enough to know that that's not good. So he gets brought into a consultation room. The anesthesiologist, the attending that was there, which was different than the one that flagged my file, came in and said, you know, your wife had an amniotic fluid embolism. Do yourself a favor. Don't look it up. (laughs) Right, right. Um, And she said later she appreciated having an Air Force pilot because pilots and anesthesiologists think the same way. It's like... He went into autopilot. What's morbidity, mortality? What are the hours we're looking at? What, like he went into protocol. Like what are you, what are, what's, where are the worst case scenarios yep. each hour that passes? And he said, if she needs a hysterectomy, this is the doctor we met with two months before. And he said, you know, she took down the name, but she was like, look, you know, she's stable right now. We're transferring her to the, the surgical ICU in a medically induced coma. Um, you can see her, but I, she won't make it through another surgery. And, you know, I think we've stabilized the blood. And seven hours later, while he's sitting next to me, um, the bells and whistles go off and turned out I was still hemorrhaging. They called in the doctor, the gynoc that I had met with, to perform the hysterectomy. They did the pathology on the uterus afterwards, and they showed that an accreta had started to form, but it was microscopic, and where it was located, the MRI hadn't picked it up yet. Now, now how did that help by having talked to that gynecologist that did the hysterectomy in advance? So here's the thing. They would have never done what I was 
thinking that they would do. Had they not delivered the placenta, the placenta disengaged from the uterus, allowing the amniotic fluid to get into the bloodstream because there was a hole in the uterus. Mm -hmm. Had they performed the hysterectomy with the placenta attached, none of this would have happened. But, but was it to your advantage having gone to that gynecologist and said, I may need you? Was it advantageous to have him to do that? Well, he was, you're dealing with 20% of the blood supply. So it's a very high risk surgery. Mm -hmm. And under such emergent situation, he's seen more than a maternal fetal medicine. And at the time I was the highest acuity case in the hospital in the Mm -hmm. maternity ward. So to have an MFM do it when this was the worst case scenario, as opposed to a gynonc that maybe this isn't the worst case What's scenario. What's an MFM? Maternal fetal medicine. Oh. Because the OB would have transferred for this kind of surgery to maternal fetal medicine. But because I had the doctor on my roster of yeah. doctors who could do this, and he was the head of the practice at the hospital, yeah. he has seen worst case reproductive organ cancer. And so in which case... He, you know, I well, believe it did help. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the bottom line as we come up to a break here. So you're having gone to see him and said, now, you know me, mm-hmm. I'm your patient, even though he says you're crazy. I, right. I, yeah. He was there. He was kind of standing by, but not really. But he knew yeah. what, what the deal was when you went in. Oh, my goodness. So you did it. You died and you came back. We're going to talk after the break about your really your horrendous recovery, but what you learned from that, your recovery physically, but then also psychologically and spiritually as a result of some regressions, hyp- hypnotic regressions. So we're talking with Stephanie Arnold, the author of 37 Seconds, Dying Revealed Heaven's Help absolutely riveting i hope you all come back with us in three minutes we'll continue the story oh my god we have one more minute he's so right i'm so riveted <laughs> he's like clock and i'm like so confused okay so you can answer in under a minute and let yeah. us know so many of my guests have had near-death experiences and they talk about seeing the light, going to the light. You were dead for 37 seconds. Did you have an experience during that 37 seconds? I did, but not at the time that in the, in, in this universe, it was a different, it was a different experience. I, I was on a talk show and the host said, did you see the light? And I said, I don't know, man, they gave me a lot of drugs. And so at the time I was like, if there was a way to find out, I was going to find out. And I found out. Okay. Well, now my minute is up and we will find out after the real three-minute break. Come on back, everybody. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. 
everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back. You're listening to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman. Oh, boy. And Stephanie Arnold and I have been talking offline here. And I said, oh, we got to stop talking because I want everybody else to hear this. She's talking about having died on the table while delivering her second child. But she knew that was going to happen. She was uh, as prepared as she could be. And basically, that was being scared to death. Now, uh, Stephanie, when you first reached out to me, you gave me a link to a clip of you doing an interview on Good Morning America. Mm -hmm. And I also want to tell everybody, you can see that probably on YouTube, but you are now currently featured in the first episode of the Netflix series, Surviving Death. So Mm -hmm. I really encourage everybody to watch that because then you can see this beautiful woman and hear more of the story and how it has affected doctors your story. But meanwhile, reading your book, I realized that when you did that Good Morning America interview, you had not yet started your regression therapy. So really, you only gave half of the story about the foreboding in that interview. So we're going to get to that, what came out in the regression therapy. But I have to tell everybody listening, your recovery was horrendous. Your physical condition after this It wasn't just one of these stories, oh, I died and I came back. Tell us what it was like when you awoke. Yeah, so I was put in a six-day medically induced coma. My kidneys had failed. I started dialysis. Um, I was in the hospital for about a month, and um, was I left the hospital in a wheelchair and was on outpatient dialysis, and then I had some neurological deficit where I couldn't even read children's books to my children at night. And, um, I was in pain that whole time. You know, I was so heavily medicated. Um, but I was also very scared that if I wasn't monitored 24 seven, that I would spontaneously combust because what did I, I felt I had, aside from having survivor's guilt, I think I had that feeling. Did I manifest this? Did I think about this so much that I was, um, that I caused these organs to combine and caused myself to hemorrhage. I subsequently have come to the conclusion I have not, but it wasn't, you know, without I, that, I that. get that. Yeah. So there was and a then, God. Yeah, go ahead. And then the other really heart-wrenching part of this is you're a new mom and there's your little boy and you're in a coma and then you're too sick to deal with him. Yeah. And then when I came home, psychologically, I was messed up. I had a nurse come to the house every night because the night was the hardest um, when everybody's quiet and just happy that, you know, life continues and we're safe and everything is fine. And my husband went again into autopilot mode, suppress, repress, let's move on. But I Uh kept asking questions. I'm like, 
how did I see this? You know, the doctors, every, every department who had touched me from cardiology, nephrology, hematology, they were like, how did you know? Cause it was very well documented in my case. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm a teaching hospital. You tell me. <laughs> and, and you, you very well describe in your book, how you, how tiring it got to have all these medical student doctors come in and look at this miracle woman who survived this ordeal. Yeah. Yeah. So for future, for anybody out there in the healthcare industry or anybody who has survived this, hearing that that God has a reason you survived or you're a miracle that you survived was not helpful because you become then acutely aware of how close a call it was. And it, that doesn't help your recovery. You need to put mind over matter and put one step forward. And hearing that takes you a few steps back. Wow. But, but ultimately, you know, I got stronger physically. And then I would go to therapy and Good. they would like, how, how are you doing? I said, you know, I need you to tell me how it is. I saw everything months before it happened. Mm -hmm. And they said, let's not worry about that right now. Let's just oh, worry no. about getting you out of the trauma. You know, for you talking to me, you'd be like, no, we need to address the big elephant in the room. But for them, this is not relatable. And, and for my husband, he's like, let's just forget about the premonitions. Can we just put a pin in that, bury that under the rug? And I'm like, May I say something real yeah. quick here? Yeah. I just learned about a new field that's emerging, and I just want to clap my hands and get this term out there more, clinical parapsychology, mm. to train therapists to understand that people who come to them with stories like yours need to be listened to and respected and, and heard. So they didn't know what to do with you, huh? They didn't. And, and, you know, and I would get angry and Jonathan's like, they're only trying to help. And I said, yeah, well, this is unhelpful because these premonitions keep coming. So now I feel like, you know, I got unplugged. I, got, I went asystolic, which means no electricity running through my body. And then when you get plugged back in, you're on high voltage. And so now all of a sudden I'm feeling everything. I'm sensing everything. I'm experiencing everything. And oh, that, wait, yeah. could we clarify that a minute? Mm -hmm. When you talk about high voltage, do you mean that you were suddenly psychically or intuitively sensitive? Yeah. Huh. In what way did that manifest? It manifested in what my children, I would see what my children were doing about 15 minutes before it would happen. I saw danger occurring um, in, in a, I don't know, because I'm a television producer, but I would see it frame by frame happening. Hmm five, 10, 15 minutes before it happened, I would know things that I shouldn't know about complete strangers who walked into a room. There were moments where I, I would see spirits and I would just be like, what was that? I'm, I'm crazy. Right. You now, know, we, like, we have a bunch of listeners right now saying that's my world. That's my life. <laughs> really? No, How, but it was it, frightening. It was frightening. That because day? Are you still that way? Yeah, I'm still that way, but I don't, you know, I, I have learned, especially, you know, I feel like I know what part of my mission, you'll probably tell me there's just this, this other thing there, but part of my mission in life is really to be the bridge between the medical community and being a patient advocate. And when you, when you advocate for yourself, even if it's something you don't understand, um, then you can save lives, both from the clinician side and from the patient side. So I yeah, feel you, like you, you, yeah. you talked about you know, I want to take one of your classes and you would learn so much, but just how the spirit world works, who it is you're seeing and why, but you're absolutely right. I'm seeing you're not meant to be a medium. You're, you are right on track with what you just said. Thank you. Thank you for the validation on that. But yeah, I, I think that, 
that I went through this, you know, because I handled it in a, in a way that I handled it, doctors, hospitals, universities. I even spoke at the Department of Defense, if you can believe it. Um, and so... But see, again, you were perfectly prepared for that. You were a professional woman who's used to saying what creative ideas you have and producing things. You can see the perfection of this whole plan, but you, you know, are fulfilling our mission is not without its suffering, and you really suffered. I just want to say briefly here, you said that before the... Before you got pregnant, you weighed 120 pounds. Mm-hmm. When you went into deliver, you weighed 170 with that mm-hmm. baby weight. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, with the fluid gain, because your kidneys had shut down, will you tell everybody what you weighed? 220 pounds. All that fluid. Your legs were five times their normal mm-hmm. size. Talk about pain. And then yeah. your yeah, and then your kidneys. Yeah. But among everything else, then your kidneys kicked back in. You got rid of all that fluid, and but but. Everything in your body was just out of alignment. Yeah. And then even though you know you're going to get a hysterectomy, you know all these things, hearing all of it happening and everything that you foresaw coming true is really difficult to deal with. And then to be plugged back in and then to feel and sense other premonitions, I needed answers as to how I can do it. I didn't need the why. I accepted whatever was coming my way, but I needed the mechanics of how it worked. And so I ended up meeting um, a regression therapist who'd worked with Dr. Brian Weiss for many years. And she took me back. She basically explained that under hypnosis, um, you are an observer. This already happened to a part of you. And so we're going to access moments in your brain that are like film strips that have just been locked away either through meds or through whatever um, through the trauma. And so I videotaped that therapy. And when you see me at one point go through a seizure and convulse and start screaming and then explain everything that's happening in the operating room from an out of body experience, like, you know, who hit the button for the code that the first crash card didn't work, but the second crash card did that, uh, which nurse jumped on my chest to give me CPR, what my doctors were doing down by my feet, like what my daughter was doing in the room down the hallway, all of a sudden walls and ceilings. You're you're going through this so fast, but this is the whole key for me an evidence-based medium. Uh, This is the key right here. You, you went to a non-traditional type therapy, mm-hmm. regression therapy, to take you back to that moment. And what Stephanie's just told us is she's seeing what happened, actually reliving the yeah. seizure, seeing what your daughter, two years old, is doing down the hall while you were dead. Mm-hmm. And where the nurse's break room was in the middle of the labor and delivery operating floor, which a patient wouldn't see, like what things were on the walls, what my husband was wearing when he got off the plane, when I was in a coma, what my sister was doing, you know, going to Macy's and shopping for. So like there were all these details, right? And then I come out of it and I feel better. And my husband takes one quick gander at the video because it's quite graphic. And he's like, how do you know this isn't a recalled episode of Grey's Anatomy in your head? A recalled episode of Grey's Anatomy. Oh my goodness! <laughs> but it's a, but it's a fair point, right? You yeah, know, you but can, the details. Can, I know, but I didn't know if those details were true at that moment. So that you know, it could have been a mix-up. And with all of the trauma, sure, why not? So I called. Well, I, the- I, I want to stop a second because yeah. I don't want you to miss this key point that I got out of the book, page one fifty. <laughs> you should. See, I I I wrote all over your wonderful. I book. love it. I yeah. love it. You you. 
did not want to see your medical records before you went into regression therapy. So you deliberately didn't look. And I love that. That's a little bit of self-science there saying, if this is going to work, I'm going to need to know that it did not come from my conscious mind. That's correct. But even if if you were to take a look at the the 100, 200, 600 page medical file, none of what I saw would actually be written in the medical file, like which person hit the button for the code, that the second crash cart worked, that who actually had their hands on delivering the baby. Like there were just lots of things in there that happened very rapidly that wouldn't be part of the medical file, right? And so, um, so I asked the therapist, I said, how do you know what I'm telling you is true? And she said, sometimes the only evidence we get is that the patient feels better and you feel better. And I said, yeah, but that's not good enough for me. I have witnesses. Could, could we stop a second? Mm-hmm. And would you explain why you felt better? It was almost like uh, this heaviness. Once I cried it, like even writing the book, I threw up a lot and I got sick a lot, which you could probably tell really? reading the pages of like, because when you write something or even like I did something for NPR and you have to be so descriptive audio wise, it, it drudges up the, the, the cells in the body that still have the trauma. So when I actually went through that one release, when she finally got me after, I don't know, 30 hours of, of regression therapy, she finally oh. got me back into the OR. Well, that's an important point. This is yeah. not like one shot. We're going to go in. Let's go to the OR. 30 hours of regression and then this happened. Well, I'm a total immersion kind of person, right? It's like get in, get out. I'm like, let's, let's just get it, get it over with because who wants to live with this pain forever? Right, right. You know, and so Jonathan was also smart enough to know, like, I don't know what this regression stuff is, but I don't think you should do this. Like, I think that this is going to hurt. And, you know, she had assured me that it wasn't, but it was quite painful. It wasn't, it, you know, it wasn't just a walk in the park. It wasn't like it, you know, parts painful of the body. psychologically. Don't... No, and physically. Like Ooh. I felt, you see on the tape, like I, I, you, I can't breathe. You're, you're feeling your body, you know, go through these, maybe not to the intensity of which it had, you know, you know, a year before, but most certainly painful, no doubt. And then, um, so I said, I have witnesses and I said, lucky for me, I had it on tape. So I didn't have to third party talk about, Oh, did you think this and see body language? I handed the tapes to the doctors who were present, including the anesthesiologist who flagged my file and all of these other people. And they said, um, like the one anesthesiologist said, you know, it wasn't like a regular embolus, you know, you kind of gagged. And I said, did it look anything like this? And I showed her the video of my body convulsing. And she's like, it looked exactly like that. I remember in the book, you said the look on her face and or just like, oh my God, she cried because she saw you do that and you did it in regression therapy. That was stunning. Yeah. Yeah. And then my other doctors were like, I didn't go to medical school for this. This is accurate down to where we're standing, where what we were doing. You shouldn't know where the break room is. We never even wheel you past that. We wheel you in the hallway on the operating room. This was on the other side of that. My doctor, I kept saying to my OB, I said, did you say this can't be happening? This can't be happening. She said, I did. But by your feet, under my breath, under my mask and under my gloves, <laughs> under, you know, like, and so she's like, you would never have heard that. And she's like, I'll give you that hearing is the last to go as the brain is shutting down. But you most certainly couldn't see because after you were intubated, your eyes are taped shut. There's a curtain in front of your face. And while all heck is breaking loose, you know, that your eyes rolled back, you seized, you had, you for all intents and purposes, you were not there. And, so, yeah. 
since we unfortunately only have an hour, I could talk to you for hours. What is the explanation for that from the non-medical person? They're going to try to explain it by science. What some some you know the anesthesiologist who flagged my phone and what I'm finding the more I talk about this to clinicians the more they say science doesn't have the answers and I think you need to go spiritual on this one and and that is because objectively our instruments only take us so far and what you had was a subjective experience and that's when you get into the realm of the spiritual non-physical so we right. can we can only take your word for it and the evidence, which is these beautiful validations that you're sharing you're sharing here and in your book. Wow. Yeah. And your daughter was down the hall playing exactly as you saw her. She was. She was. I mean, and you know, some of the doctors and like Jonathan's like, well, maybe science hasn't caught up to it yet. And I said, you know, I'm open to it. I said, but I feel like because the stuff keeps coming. Um, and I keep seeing things that there is this other dimension that I'm just more perceptive to right now. And maybe it's just like how, um, people teach or how you teach or how you share it, but like dogs have better hearing than some humans and eyesights are better in other, other species. Maybe my intuition is just, you know, tuned in to a higher frequency just because I got unplugged and plugged back in. It's no doubt about it. And your whole belief system got turned upside down and belief is the number one key before you had no idea there was a greater reality. Now, you know, there is. And so that that's just opened that filter of the brain. That's the brain is to the greater reality. That's right here. And it's, and it's been proven that listening to stories like yours helps the rest of us open that filter wider. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the emails that I get from people are very much about like, thank you for validating my own, my own feelings, my own um, situation. And I wanted, you know, part of this story was that, you know, I did see hundreds of spirits when I flatlined. And so, you know, psychologists talk about like, of course, when you're traumatized, you will see your loved ones. And I'm like, okay, fine, we'll put a pin in that one that will give you that one if that's the one you want. But it's the ones I did not know that had messages for the people I do know back on it on this earth and so that was that was harder to do you have an example that you're allowed to share yeah of course I mean I I wrote one in the book like you know with my best friend her seven-year-old brother um had passed uh he passed when he was seven and so you know the message was I miss how my sister twirled my hair and those were the exact words and then I also she had always questioned how he died and instinctively, I just felt because he died in his sleep and he he choked on his vomit. And so I was like, she had always wondered because I didn't want to do an autopsy and she thought something fishy was going on. So I had explained to her, I don't know what this is. I have no idea if this is accurate. I have no idea if this is real. But your brother said this and she dropped the phone crying and she said I used to twirl his hair every night to put him to sleep and she said and sometimes when I'm twirling my son's hair um he's looking out into the distance and it feels like he's smiling at someone and I just get great comfort thinking that my brother's around but you're giving me the proof that I needed anybody else have goosebumps yeah that's awesome now did that did that happen while you were dead on the table and you saw it later in regression? I saw all of it later in regression, but I don't know the timing of when Mm -hmm. it happened. So, so 
you know, I, I told you during the break, I'm like, you know, Simon and Schuster rejected me because they said I didn't die long enough to make it compelling. And, (laughs) you know, and what they don't understand, but what Harper Collins ultimately did was that there is no space and time in this other dimension. So there's a lot of downloads. So I can't tell you that in those 37 seconds that I saw her brother at, at time 35 or when I was in the coma or, or even, throughout my regression and that if just- i could interrupt some people especially our overseas listeners might not know that simon and schuster and harper collins are two major publishers so the first one didn't want your book not compelling enough that you were only dead yes. 37 seconds and harper collins is the one now that gets the kudos because that's not the whole story mm-hmm. the story is that this opened you up to the greater reality that is here and that little boy who passed at seven is here and he's using whatever means possible and you're the messenger. And it really doesn't matter if it came through when you were flatlined or afterwards, you now have access to that world and all of us uh, can in some way access it. And that first key is belief. And thank you for helping us with that. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I, you know, but it, it, it continues. And I feel like, I feel like if I have any gift, it really is the fact that I have no filter because when things happen, they happen immediately. And usually it's my first instinct. That's right. I had a, a pitch meeting I, and with a very big Hollywood producer and I'd never met her before. And we were sitting with 10 people in her conference room and my agent was there and there was, she was considering buying the rights to the book. And in the middle of the meeting, and I don't, again, I don't know anybody in the middle of the meeting, um, I feel tightness on my chest and I feel like I'm going to have a heart attack, mm. but I, but I know it's not mine. So I have two choices. I either speak up with the woman that can change my life, you know, buying the rights and doing all this stuff, or I can shut up. And, um, so I couldn't breathe. And I said, I'm sorry. I say to this woman, I'm like, there's a woman standing next to you. I believe it's your mother. She's screaming at you about a dress. Now I'm talking about a ghost Look in the middle you. of a meeting. I don't remember all this, but everybody said I did. So I must've said it. And I said, (laughs) she's like, no, Stephanie, my mother's fine, whatever. And then afterwards I'm like, okay, somebody in here has a male family member who just had a heart attack. Anybody here? No, 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 no. This woman starts talking, the CEO, the owner of the company. And she's like, you don't think I'm going to have a heart attack. I'm like, no, but as she's talking, it's getting tighter. So I'm convinced it's her. Stephanie, here's your valet ticket. Really nice to meet you. Don't let the door hit you on the way out, right? So I leave and my agent's like, what's with the theatrics? I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. This is so strong. I'm going back in. She's like, no. So I go back go back in. I'm like, I'm sorry, can you please check with your family? I know I've lost this pitch. I know it's her. And I know I'll never see you again, but I got, fine, Stephanie, thank you, goodbye. And I get a call four days later and um, from her CEO. And he's like, so she lied to you. Her mother had passed six years ago and she knew exactly the dress you were talking about, but she didn't know that you had these kind of abilities. And so we just kind of brushed it off. She's like, second of all, everybody was freaked out, but um, she went back to her office and her sister called from New York. She said, um, her father had a heart attack at the moment you were feeling it. Mm-hmm. And um, she don't ever want to talk about it again, but uh, we're buying your rights. Yeah. So I can help you with the filter part, (laughs) but you don't want to turn that off. (laughs) The the filter. And also like, if I could have given, like, if I could have known for sure that this was her father, that would have been more impressive. (laughs) I would have been like, go call your father. Well, it's all part of that web. You know, that was meant to unfold just as it did. Wow. Such an amazing web we're part of. 
Wow. I, I love that you, uh, in your book, page 169, you say you decided you had to stop living in the past. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? Um, the way the past looked, the way that grieving what the, the ignorance of the past was. I feel like, um, you know, in some ways, ignorance is bliss because you don't see this other dimension. You can live your life a certain way. And I, in some ways, my husband probably would prefer that we went back to that way mm-hmm. uh, because it's a lot lighter. The, the visions I get are dealing with life and death. They're not who is going to win the lottery. It's I, if anything, it's more of a, a medical medium kind of as, attribute that I have. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but I can't mourn it. You know, I'm, less funnier now, but I, you know, I don't, I wouldn't trade it for the deep connections I have with people. You and I wouldn't have connected on such a deep soulful level had I not gone through the experience. And I respect and admire you so much. And when I read your bio and I learned more about your story and the pain and the transition, it was, it connected me so deeply to you. And that wouldn't have happened without what I went through. I know that, that all of us have a story and and it's those pivotal moments that that change our lives. And so many of you listening today couldn't not, you can't ignore that nudge in you to somehow serve others through what you've been through. So I hope that, that hearing Stephanie's story today has helped you. Stephanie, you said during the break, you know, the two things you've learned from this whole experience, pay attention to foreboding. Do you remember the second thing? Yeah, and that we're not alone. And that way, you know, when you have a patient or when you have a family member who's in a coma and because look with this pandemic, people have been unfortunately dying alone, have been in a coma and you're, you're upset because you can't be near them physically. I promise you that they can hear you. I promise you that if you get on a FaceTime with them, that they can hear you. And you were in a coma. I was. And in, in some cases they can see you. So when you are saying goodbye, they are hearing you, and it's not goodbye forever. That's right. You, you all did a beautiful job in writing of, the, I'll, I won't give it away, but Uncle Mar, uh, Melvin comes Marvin, in the beginning. Yeah. Marvin comes in in the beginning and in the end and really validates we're not alone. There is really no death. There's physical body death, and you went through it, and you're here now to share the greater message. And I thank you so much for sharing it with everybody today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me here. And I look forward to a continued relationship and coming to one of your classes. (laughs) That would be great. Everybody, thank you for joining us. I love you all. And we'll be back here again next week. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Do you ever feel that calling that you should be doing more with your life? If you're unhappy with the status quo, I can help. My name is Elias Patras, and I'm an intuitive motivator, psychic medium, and motivational speaker. I know that feeling, and on my podcast, Your Inner Voice, 
I can help you answer that call to step into your life's purpose. I will show you how to recognize and listen to the signs and signals that are all around us and help you tap into your intuition. Join me for the show here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and wherever you get your podcasts. Let's connect, educate, and grow on this journey together.